Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's works, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lisa. For our fall series, we are looking at the letter of First Peter, which was written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and actually the, the disciple that Jesus chose and appointed to be the leader of the early church. Peter's letter, as we've been looking at the past few weeks, is all about suffering. It's probably the place in the New Testament that most directly addresses the hardship and the sufferings of life more than any other letter. But alongside what Peter has to say about suffering and about hardship, he places hope. So more than anything else, this is a letter about hope. And that's why we're calling the series Living Hope. One of the, one of the reasons why I liked uh, that phrase, it's directly from the letter from verse 3 in chapter 1. Peter says, we have a living hope. We've been born again into this living hope. But living hope, uh, if you're ready to think about some grammar, can you think with gra about grammar with me for a moment? A living hope can be taken in two different ways, if you think about it. Living hope can be adjective noun. So living is the adjective, right, that describes noun. So it's a living hope in contrast to a dead hope or a hope that isn't sure. Or certain. So that's living hope, and that's how Peter uh, intended it in verse 3 of chapter 1. He said, we have this living hope, adjective noun, but it can also be living hope, verb, direct object. So that is the life that we are living is hope. How do we live hope? And that's a good way to understand the entire letter of First Peter. He says, this is the living hope that you have. So this is who you are, and this is the hope that you can live. This is how it changes how we live. Peter calls, as we just heard read, this new life a holy life. For my Christian friends here, and even if, if you're here and you're exploring Christianity, uh, Christianity is somewhat new to you, you have questions or maybe some skepticism, um, a holy life for people all across the spiritual spectrum, I would say, a holy life is something either that we really don't want, if we're honest, or we really don't think it's possible, even if we want it. 
We think of the word holy, the, the phrase holy life, we think that a holy life is for holy people, not for just normal people. But Peter says here in this passage that we just heard read and we're going to look at this morning, he says, no, a holy life, if you know what it is, if you know how you can live it, you would want it. You would want it more than anything else. And he says, it's not for just a holy people. It's for every person who believes in Jesus. So let's look at this. We're going to look at three different aspects of a holy life, where it starts, what does it look like, and how, how can we live it. So first, when we think of a holy life, where does it start? Most of us think uh, a holy life, we think of that phrase, that concept, we think that starts with God's commandments and God's laws and God's instructions. That's not true. A holy life, look at verse 13, Peter says, and teaches, it starts with hope. Of course, commands and laws and instructions have something to do, a lot to do with a holy life, but Peter says it starts with hope. If your hope is in the wrong things, you will not live a holy life. And there's a lot packed in to these verses, these nine verses. As you're looking at it, either in your Bible or in uh, the bulletin here, there's a lot happening. We won't be able to cover all of it, but if you look at this, there are actually two main uh, imperatives, we call them, or commands in the passage. And everything hinges and, and uh, comes out of and is unpacked from these two main commands. What are they? They are first, Peter says, fix your hope completely. Hope is the first command. And the second command, a few verses later, is be holy. And really everything else is tied in to those two main calls or those two main commands. Set your hope fully and be holy. And it wasn't really for me until this week where I've begun to see just how closely connected those two aspects of Christian living are, hope and holiness. Now, the past couple weeks, we've been looking at verses 1 through 12, the very beginning of the letter. And in 1 through 12, Peter is focused in on telling us what this hope is. He's saying this is who, what God has done, and if you have this hope, this is who you are. He's talking about this new identity that we have because of this hope. But in verse 13, Peter says, therefore, so he's making a transition. He says, therefore, with your minds ready for action and being sober, fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought about at the revelation of Jesus. So what's the picture? We need to see this picture. Uh, gird up the loins of your mind is how it could be translated literally. So in that day, people wore robes, and when they wanted to run fast, if you've ever tried to run fast in a long robe, <laughs> if you can imagine that, it's not easy. So when they had to do something that required them to run, they had to take up these long flowing robes and garments and tuck them in to their belts so that they could run fast. And that's Peter saying, do that with your thinking. Do that with your mind. What, is, what does that mean? Gird up the loins of your mind. Well, Peter's saying, think. Be ready to think hard, carefully. He says, soberly. Be very careful and thoughtful when it comes to your hope. And he's saying it, it takes a very clear 
and very careful thinking for us to even know where it is that our hope is set in life. And that's what he's trying to get us to do is to think. Because Peter is saying most people prefer not to think about this. This idea of of where your hope is fully set. We talked about this last week, but Peter says, if we start thinking about our hope, where is my hope set? What is this desired future reality that I am set on and seeking? We start to realize a lot of those things that we hope to see, that we hope to have, they don't last. He says they perish. Death takes them all. They are tainted with with sin and evil and suffering. And even the best hopes that we can have in life will fade. And so he says, I want you to think carefully about that. But we can see why we might say, well, I don't want to think about that. Why do I want to think about what death will take away? Why do I want to think about what's going to fade? And the fact that even the best things that I can get in this life are tainted. But Peter says that is what it means to live a Christian life. It is not to set your mind or check your brain at the door. In fact, he says it's to be as clear and as careful in your thinking as you possibly can. What is worth living for? What is a hope that will last? If this life is all there is, if death is the end, if there is no God, if there is no resurrection, think carefully and clearly about that. If there is no real right and wrong, if good will not triumph over evil, if evil will persist, if love is only just a chemical and biological reaction. As I'm saying those things, you might think, well, who wants to think about that? And Peter's point is no one because it brings a hopelessness. But he says it brings a clarity and a soberness that we need because Because what our hope is in, it actually sets the course of our present life, the choices that we make, the life that we live. So Peter says, a Christian is someone who's always to be thinking carefully and clearly, where's my hope set really? Because, as I just said, our desired future is what sets the course for our present life and decisions, right? Think about even the costly decisions that we make that we really don't want to make. We might say, I want to get into a good college. That's my hope. That's my desired future reality. So I have to study hard. Who really wants to study hard? I have to take, you know, prep classes. I have to prepare for the SAT. I have to be in these stupid clubs that I don't even want to be in. But I have to put them on my resume just because I want to get into a good college. It's the desired future hope sets the course for our present decisions. I want to advance in my career, so I'm going to take this job. It means I'll have to commute. It means I'll have to work long hours. It's not always going to be fun, but I can bear the cost. I will make that choice because that is my desired future reality. It's wherever our hope is set that determines the choices and the sacrifices how we decide what costs we'll bear in this life. So Peter says, set your hope completely, all of it on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. 
Now, I don't think he's saying don't have any other hopes in this life, such as I hope to get married, I hope to own a home someday, I hope my kids have a happy life and a genuine faith, those kinds of things. He's saying your ultimate hope, the one that is underneath all those things, the one that is your rock-bottom ultimate hope and desired future, he says, that needs to be completely set on Jesus so that if all other hopes fade and fail, what is it that you still have? Says, Peter says that. Fix everything you have on that. Now let's just talk about the relationship between hope and our lives for a moment. It's your ultimate hope that sets the ultimate standard for your conduct. Think about this with me. If your ultimate hope is, say, success, maybe that's your grades, maybe that's a position of power that you'd like to attain to. Well, if that is your ultimate hope, then you'll cheat, maybe, or bend the rules to succeed. It won't be about other success, but it'll be about your success because that is your standard. It's about you. Or if money or security is your ultimate hope, you'll use others to get it. You won't be generous with it. If it's your reputation or if it's your image, what other people think about you, isn't it true that you'll lie a little bit to protect your image? You'll make others look bad so you can yourself look good. You'd be untrue to yourself in order to please others so that they would like you. Peter says, when your hope is completely set on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus, that is when you will live a holy life because your ultimate standard of conduct will be Jesus himself and his holiness. Now, in Peter's second letter, he develops this further. I want to um, put this verse up on the screen for all of us to read because he says it very clearly. Second Peter chapter 3. How does this look? Peter says this is, um, this is where history is headed. Chapter 3, 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter is saying, base your conduct, your entire life as a Christian on the hope of this new heavens and new earth. Think hard and carefully about what doesn't last, about what does dissolve. It's not always pleasant to think about that, but he says we need to think. What matters? What lasts? What is certain? This is the future hope that shapes our lives in the present. So Peter says a holy life starts with wherever our hope is set. He says set that fully on Jesus and the grace that is coming in him. So friends, my Christian friends, if you would say to me, I've been a Christian for a while, but as I look at my life, I don't feel like I'm that different. I don't feel like my life 
is changing, Peter would say, let's start with this. Let's do some careful thinking on where your hope is really set. So that's one. Think about that. That's where a holy life starts. Now, what does it look like? Before we can live a holy life, we need to know what it is. We need to know what it looks like. And so let me ask you this. As I say the phrase, as you think about the idea, a holy life. Can you picture that? If you can close your eyes and picture yourself living a holy life. Or picture, if you can't do that, picture someone else living a holy life. What does it look like? What are you doing or what is, that, what is that person doing? And let me ask you this. Do you want that? Do you say, like, that's it. That's the life I want. Well, hopefully I'll show you that a holy life is something that you should want. Let's look at this. Verses 15 and 16. Peter says, as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, the totality of your life. For it is written, quoting Leviticus, Peter is here, he says, Be holy, for I am holy. Be holy, for I am holy. Twice Peter refers this concept of a holy life back to God himself, as the one who called you is holy. Be holy, for God is holy. What what does it mean that God is holy? Isaac already um, shared a few things. It means that God is, is utterly separate. He is set apart. He is transcendent. He is wholly other than us. He's in a completely different category, completely pure, and without any moral stain, without any sin or evil. So we hear that definition about God being holy. He's completely other. He's transcendent. He's completely without sin, completely pure. We say holiness is all about how God is not like us. So how is it that we can be holy like God is holy? What does it mean? To be holy then, it means, it has to mean that we also are set apart in some way. That our lives are set apart for some purpose. It means that our lives are fully and completely devoted to God, that our lives belong to to God. Now, let me, let me unpack this for a moment because this is something different and something beyond morality, and we need to see that. To be a holy person is not the same thing as being a good person or a moral person. No, a holy life is something altogether different. A holy person will be moral and will be good, but a moral good person may not be holy at all. Let me first share uh, something I found this week that I think Uh, puts it really well from the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. We'll put that up on the screen. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, holiness is better than morality. It goes beyond it. Holiness affects the heart. Holiness respects the motive. Holiness regards the whole nature of a person. A moral person does not do wrong in act. A holy person hates the thought of doing wrong. A moral person does not swear, but a holy person adores. A moral person would not commit outward sin. A holy person would not commit inward sin. And if committed, they would pour forth floods of tears. 
Now, what he's getting at there, and what we need to see, if we'll ever even want to live a holy life, is that a holy life is not the same thing as living a moral or good life. It's beyond morality. It's beyond keeping the rules. Because if we're honest, the idea of the goal of our life being a moral life, the goal of our life keeping to be just found in keeping a set of rules, that is not very exciting. It's not a very exciting life to me. It sounds very boring. It's true that is a part of what it means to live a holy life, but it's not the heart of what it means to live as a Christian. To be a Christian means to live a holy life. And if I could summarize it, I would summarize it like this. Holiness is getting more of God into your whole life. Or maybe better yet, God getting more and more of your life. It is devoted to Him. It belongs to Him, all of it. This is really important, the distinction between holiness and morality. So let me dig a little bit deeper. We would probably say somebody who is irreligious or immoral, who rejects uh, traditional moral teaching and rules, they do that to get less of God in their life. So they say, maybe I want some spiritual benefit from God or from however I conceive of God. I want some peace. I want some spiritual, um, you know, kind of relaxation from that. But I want to keep control over most of my life. So I want less of God if there is a God in my life. But the important thing for us to see here is that the same thing applies for the religious and moral person who does good, who keeps the rules. It's not to get more of God into their life, but less. How so? A moral person says, if I follow these rules, if I do these moral things, good, then I'm done. I've done my part. The rest of my life is mine. God will give me His blessing. God will do what I want Him to do in my life, and then I'll get heaven when I die. Notice what's missing from that. God. Getting more of God. A religious and moral life is all about getting from God. But once you've done your part, you want less and less of God in your life. It goes like this. When we say things like, well, what movies is it okay for a Christian to watch and not watch? Or what music is it okay to listen to or not listening to? How much do I have to give? And then I'm good. What all that has in common is saying, what do I have to do to live the rest of my life how I want to with less of God? But a holy person does good, follows the rules, is moral to get more of God into their life, to know the holiness and the beauty and the glory of God because that is their highest hope and happiness. One of the main images, and Isaac also mentioned this in the liturgy, uh, for holiness in the Bible is the image of fire. If you think of the stories in Scripture where God comes in His holy presence, there's the burning bush when, when God reveals Himself to Moses and He says, Moses, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. There's Mount Sinai when God gives the law. He's on the mountain and He's manifested as a consuming fire. 
And the prophet Isaiah, when he's called to the prophetic ministry, he gets a glimpse of God in heaven and the angels are singing, holy, 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 and there's a burning coal, of, of, of a burning uh, set of coals that's on fire in the presence of God. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, how does the Holy Spirit come? It's fire. Now, how does fire show us what it means that God is holy? Well, fire, on the one hand, it consumes everything. When fire gets a hold of something, it consumes it all. One of the times in my life where I've been most, like, awestruck, just most, like, floored in awe was when, after uh, 2007, there were some San Diego fires that devastated uh, large portions of San Diego. I went and helped just clean up one of the homes that was completely burned. And our mission as we were going to help was just walk amongst the rubble and see if anything was left. And there was nothing left. Everything was reduced to little uh, rubble, stones, pieces of just like the biggest one was like that big. Fire just consumed everything, left behind nothing. But fire also brings warmth and light and energy and power. It makes life possible. So when we're cold, we're drawn to fire. When it's dark, we need fire. In order to live, we need fire. What does that mean? Those images, a holy life is to have the very holiness of God, His life, pulsating and energizing and animating our lives. It means... The holy presence of God that, yes, is consuming and burning all sin and selfishness in me. But in the process, to be made holy is to be made more human, to be made more whole. The more holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, we are gods, the more holy we are, the more human we are. Now, you Maybe you're not sure you want that kind of fire in your life. But maybe one thing we can agree upon, given that description, it's not boring. It's not ho-hum. It's not just keeping the rules. This is the fire of God coming to consume us and energize us from within. The Bible says this is what will happen to every Christian who places their faith in Jesus. God will bring this fire to bear in our lives. That's what a Christian is, someone who says, set my life on fire, God. Consume my life, it's all yours. That's a holy life. Now, just let me ask you to think about that. Do you want that? It is a dangerous thing, we know, to say yes to fire. But it is also a thing that draws us in for life. Maybe Maybe you want that. Maybe a little more after hearing that. We've talked about what holiness looks like on the inside. What about what it looks like on the outside? Just a few thoughts on that. And the answer that Peter gives, holiness looks strange. It looks strange. Verse 17. Look at that with me. It says, if you appeal, um, actually in verse, um, yeah, verse 17. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, 
You're to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers, as strangers. A holy life is a strange life, and this can be used as a kind of test to know how holy we really are and we are becoming. If you've lived in another country uh, for any length of time, or even if you've come into this country as someone coming from somewhere else, you know when you come into a place as a stranger, there's kind of two dynamics that go on. On the one hand, sometimes you can unknowingly offend people because you don't understand the customs and the culture, and so you can be offensive because you're just from a different culture. But also, not always, but also some people will see you and say, oh, here's somebody. Obviously, they're not from around here. They're from somewhere else, and they're drawn to you. They want to ask you, where are you coming from? What is it like where you live? Well, Peter's saying it's in, in the same way. When we live holy lives, we are strange in that same way. On the one hand, Peter says, a holy life will offend. And on the other hand, a holy life will attract. A holy life will make you a stranger no matter what culture you're in. That It'll offend and repel, but it also will attract at the same time. How might this look? Well, when it comes to a holy life, to the life that God calls us to live, to the Christian ethic, um, here's an example of what it might look like that it sometimes offends, but also can attract. So to a modern progressive culture, like the one we're living in, the Christian sexual ethic, it sounds very strange. It sounds like it's from another world. But the Christian ethic on justice and compassion for the poor, the alien, the widow, and the oppressed, very attractive to a modern progressive culture. To a more traditional culture, the Christian sexual ethic is attractive. Faithfulness, monogamy, good. But the ethic of forgiveness and grace is strange when it's more based on honor and giving people what they deserve. Peter says there's no way around it. Holiness is strange no matter where you live. A life lived more holy and fully for God can be offensive. A life lived more holy and fully for God is also beautiful and glorious. And this means, my Christian friends, if we only offend by the life that we're, we're leading, then that is not a holy life. If we only attract by the life that we are leading, that's not a holy life either. If we neither offend nor attract, that's not holiness. A holy life, Peter says, the one that God is building in you will sometimes offend because God is a consuming fire who calls out our sin and selfishness, but it will also attract because there's nothing more pure and beautiful than holiness. Holiness where it starts, holiness what it looks like, and lastly, how to live it. So Peter says, first, it's a matter of the mind and your thinking. Be sober. Think hard. And then he says, it's a matter of the will to be obedient, to be holy in all of our conduct. So the mind and the will, but that's not enough. It's not just going from the mind and saying, okay, I'm going to think hard about it, and now I'm going to be holy the way God has called me to be. I'm going to give all of my life holy to God. There's something that has to happen in between, and that's the heart. That's the level of our desires. 
Peter says, don't be conformed to the desires you once had. Live out of a new desire. We need to want this holy life. How do we get there? First, we need to feel and experience the emptiness of an unholy life. That's what Peter's getting at in verse 18. He says, you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. He says, you have been redeemed by an empty way of life. And until we feel that, until we experience that, we won't want the life of holiness. He uses this word empty that appears throughout the Old Testament in Ecclesiastes and other places. It's the word where Ecclesiastes says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Every hope I have, everything I get, it all seems like it's wind that I'm clutching nothing. He's saying an unholy life has no substance. It's fading like the wind. One of the most important experiences that God brings us on the path to holiness is when we get what we most hope for. The thing that we have sacrificed everything for And we have it, and there's still emptiness. That's when we feel it. That's when we experience. God is saying, I've redeemed you from that emptiness to give you something better, a holy life and a sure hope. So first we need to feel and experience that emptiness. It's something that's hard, but it's something that God brings us through to teach us this. And lastly... We need to feel and experience the costliness of a holy life. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, You were redeemed, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He's talking about being redeemed by not silver or gold. He's talking about the cost, the price of a holy life. And when we all think about a holy life, maybe the thing that we think about first is, all the stuff that it seems like I'm going to have to give up and sacrifice, the things I won't get to do. And that's true, but Peter is saying, even if you gave the best you had and sacrificed it all, it wouldn't be enough. There is a cost to a holy life. And that is this. Everything unholy must be consumed. It must be completely obliterated. Because God is holy. He will, because of who He is, consume all that is unholy. But because we are not holy, then the cost would be our whole lives. Everything. So, what's the answer? How do we get out of that dilemma? In John 17, 19, Jesus was praying before He went to the cross, and He prayed this prayer. He said, I sanctify myself for them so that they may also be sanctified. Now think about that. What does Jesus mean? That he's sanctifying himself. He's not saying he had sin. He's not saying that he had some moral impurities. Jesus was perfect. So what does it mean that he was sanctifying himself? Jesus is saying, I'm setting myself apart for them, so they might be set apart to you. I am wholly devoting myself for them, so they might be wholly devoted to you. Jesus did not hold back any of himself. 
for us. We, who are more unholy than we'll ever know. So how can we hold back anything from Him? The one who is unblemished and spotless and holy. Not just because we have to, but because we want to. Imagine this, this illustration far from captures what's going on here, but I think it's helpful. Imagine this, say you had a good friend, and this friend happened to get in debt, they fell on hard times, and they made poor choices, but you saw in them, you said, they have so much potential, they can't waste their life, how can I help them? So you decide, you know what, I'm going to pay off all their debt, they're just drowning in this debt, they'll never move forward unless they get this debt taken care of, and I'm going to go ahead and pay for their education so that they can get back on their feet. And so they do it, and they excel. They end up doing really well. They get a good job. They're living life, good life. And you call this friend a year later and say, hey, um, I'm looking for a ride from the airport. I'm coming back in town. Uh, Could you come and pick me up? And what if this friend were to say, well, you know, I'm kind of busy. I got a lot going on. That's actually during my nap time. So um, I don't know if I can come and pick you up. Well, but if I have to, I'll do it. Well, you might just step back and go, well, um, yeah, I I don't want to say that you have to, but I would hope that you might want to after all that I've laid down and given for you. Now, that doesn't even come close to capturing what Peter is saying here but I think it gets at the heart of it. What God is saying to us is, I have given you everything. I have paid the price and the cost. And so when I ask for your everything, it's not a have to. It's out of a want to. If God has already paid the great price to make us holy, to make us wholly His. Peter is saying He will do whatever it takes to make us holy. He is doing whatever it takes to make us holy. At the very end, he says, this is why you can have faith and hope in God. Trust Him. Hope in Him. Over time, you will see as we look at the great cost that was given, everything to make us His, we will gladly say, I'll give everything. It's all yours because of all that you've given to me. That's a holy life. Let's pray.